This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.24, Making Amends, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and a new amphibious type of podcast host. And I'm Nina, wondering, at what point will I stop being a Gundam noob? 2025. But what about... 2025. Okay, then. As is tradition, we have a lot of people to thank this week. New patrons, Mike M, Boss Hines, Michael S, Ilan M, and Oran C. Thank you for reviews from a real person, <laughs> Heinz Singh, who might be the same person as the Boss Heinz patron uh, and Crust the Warlock <laughs> for their reviews on <laughs> iTunes, and Zach S for his review on Facebook. I'd also like to thank EtWolvie20 for sending us some pictures on Twitter of the original concept designs for the Dom. And it was a skinny Dom, just like the Zaku that we talked about back in episode 15, Kukuru's Doan's Island. The original design for the Dom was supposed to be skinny. So this was the design that Okawara came up with, but Yasuhiko, the character designer, looked at it and said, no, thick Doms only, please. <laughs> I'd also like to thank on Twitter at KujiGhost, at Toby4633941712, and at Orlor1. I should have mentioned this last episode, but I would also like to thank a bunch of our patrons on Discord who helped me with my pro wrestling research. I'm sure many of you are eagerly awaiting the results of our giveaway contest. We've been waiting to complete the drawing uh, until the last of the items that are going in the prizes have shipped. We just got notice that they have. Uh, Hopefully those will be arriving by next week and we can do the drawing and get those prizes mailed out to you. We'll be sure to post the winner names on all of our social media as well as putting those names in next week's episode. Now getting back to Gundam. Last week, the White Base finally linked up with Federation Command and settled in for some rest, relaxation, and repairs at the Naval Yard in Belfast, Northern Ireland. A local spy reported their arrival to Xeon, which led to an attack on the port by a pair of the new amphibious mobile suits called Gogs. Following a difficult battle, the White Base crew was able to destroy both Gogs and drive off their supporting submarines. But little do they know that their greatest enemy, Zeon Ace Shar Aznable, has returned to menace them once more. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Episodes 27, A Spy on Board, or Ona Supai Senyu, A Lady Spy Infiltrates, and 28, Across the Atlantic Ocean, or Taisei yo Chini Somete, The Atlantic Ocean, Stained with Blood. Oh my god. That is way darker. Wow. (laughs) This week, we research the Cape Verde Islands, famous pro wrestling tag teams, submarine warfare in World War II, the inspiration for the G-Sky Easy, and some language and culture notes. But first, the recap.
Amaro briefs General Revel and his officers on the White Base crew's experience of the G-Parts, what has worked and what still needs improvement. He has his photo of Lieutenant Matilda clipped to his notes. Kai excuses himself, and outside, he punches the wall, snarling, looks like they'll be living on this ship for the rest of their lives. He stalks away, changes into civilian clothes, packs a bag, and starts to leave. Amaru tries to convince him to stay, saying that even though they don't always like each other, they've become close, fighting side by side all this time. But Bright tells Amaro to let Kai go. Kai warns Bright that they won't be able to win by pushing themselves too hard. When Bright counters that the Zeons are also pushing themselves, Kai shrugs. He says, I've passed my own limit, and walks away. In town, Kai runs into the young local woman from the previous episode. She introduces herself as Miharu. Since he looks as if he's been kicked off the ship, she offers to let him stay with her for a few days. She lives just outside of town in a rundown cottage with her two younger siblings. Kai has dinner with them, talking a bit about the white base, but when Miharu and her siblings leave the room, he finds her gun and realizes she must be a spy. When she comes back, he tells her that the white base will be leaving that night, although they've been having problems with the right engine. Once he's asleep, she relays this information. Back on the sub, Shar tells Boone to have his spy sneak aboard the White Base. It must not leave harbor before they know where it's headed. To cover the infiltration, they launch a GOG and a new suit, the Zagok. As Zeon ships bombard the harbor and the White Base crew prepares to fight, Boone sends one of his own men, in civilian disguise, to meet Miharu. Kai wakes to the sounds of explosions. The children tell him Miharu has gone to run errands, but he clearly doesn't believe them. In fact, she is meeting the Xeon agent, who gives her a disguise, a large sum of money, and new orders. Sneak aboard the White Base. By the time she returns home, Kai has gone. She leaves the money with her siblings, telling them to be careful with it because she needs to go to work and might be away for a while. She hugs them close and says a tearful goodbye, unsure when she will see them again. Kai watches the battle from outside town, telling himself that it has nothing to do with him and remembering his time on the ship. Maybe I am a coward, he says to himself, but he rushes to join the battle, arriving just in time to save Hayato and help Amuro destroy the Zagok. Zeon withdraws, but their mission is accomplished. Miharu is aboard the White Base. In the next episode, the White Base is crossing the Atlantic Ocean on its way to Federation HQ in Jaburo, South America. Miharu searches the ship for intelligence about their destination, but she is interrupted by Kai. When he spots her, she pretends that she snuck aboard to be with him, but he laughs at the idea. Still, he hides her in his room, saying that she can get off the ship when they arrive in South America. Amuro sees them together, and Kai lies, saying that Miharu is his girlfriend and that she'll be off the ship soon, asking Amuro not to tell anyone. Alone, Miharu wonders how Xeon intends to contact her all the way out here. A civilian plane in distress hails the White Base, but it is really Boone and another Xeon agent in a stolen craft. While the White Base repairs the airplane, Boone asks permission to use the bathroom. As soon as he is out of sight, he uses a short-range communicator to contact Miharu and retrieve her intel. Kai, thinking about Miharu's predicament, realizes the civilians on board must be Xeon spies. He tries to warn the rest of the crew, but it is too late to stop Boone leaving. And, unwilling to give Miharu's secret away, he is unable to convince the crew to shoot down what they still think is a civilian airplane. Boone relays the intelligence to Shar and then, with Shar's permission, takes the new mobile armor, Grabro, and two Zagoks to get revenge on the White Base for the deaths of his men. Despite the White Base's lead, the Grabro soon catches up to them and it's all hands to battle stations. Miharu sees Kika, Katz, and Letts run by and is shocked to learn there are children on board. When the ship shudders under the Grabro's missile barrage, Kai brings Miharu a life vest and tells her to stay safe, but she's overcome by guilt and begs to be allowed to help defend the White Base. Kai tries to tell her that this attack isn't her fault, but she follows him through the ship, begging to be allowed to help. 
Outside, the battle rages. The Gundam duels the Grabro beneath the waves, but its beam weapons are not suited to underwater combat. Sela manages to destroy one of the Zagoks, but is hit by a missile and crashes. With the catapults damaged, only the gun parry can launch. On the way to it, Miharu sees the orphans knocked down by another missile blast as they try to put out fires. She can't stand by and watch while her own siblings are safe. Finally, Kai agrees that she can help him by firing the missiles while he pilots. In the air, the Gunpari struggles to hit its submerged foes, launching missiles and dodging counterattacks until it is damaged by the remaining Zagok. The firing controls jam, and Miharu leaves the cockpit to fire the last missile manually. Together, she and Kai destroy the final Zagok, but the blast kills Miharu, flinging her out into the open air, and her body falls to the sea. Somewhere below, Amuro manages to best the Grabro, though it costs the Gundam a leg. On the white base, Kai sobs on the deck, surrounded by his shipmates. No one can comfort him, no one else knew Miharu, and none but Amuro had even seen her. As the rest of the crew wonder who she was, he remembers how she talked about the better future her siblings will have when the war is over. Well, at three episodes, Miharu has managed to last longer than Iselina Eschenbach and the Black Tri-Stars, and only slightly less long than Garma, who made it either four or five episodes, depending on whether you count his brief cameo scene at the end of episode five. When we do this, we often watch the episodes multiple times just to see if there's anything we didn't pick up on the first time or to verify certain details and whether we're remembering them correctly. I did not get this impression the first watch through, but on the second watch through, she really feels doomed <laughs> from pretty early on. You well, would, I guess halfway through. Yeah, when we were watching, it was the moment she hugs her brother and sister to say goodbye on the rewatch that Nina was like, oh, this is the point when I should have known she was going to die. Yeah. When you were watching it the first time without any foreknowledge of her eventual fate, you didn't pick that up. No. Well, and it, it actually happens again <laughs> when she's about to get on the gun parry with Kai. She says, if I go back, Xeon will just keep using me. If you go back? <laughs> wasn't the plan always to go back? Your siblings are back there. Maybe she has a, a sense of her own doom in that scenario. Maybe she means like, if I just go back without doing this, without helping you to resist Xeon, without changing the course of my life. Yeah. So we do learn the kids from the photo are not her kids, but her younger siblings, which means we have yet another trio of orphans. We continue the trend of orphans always coming in packs of three. This group actually related, which is a first. Jill and Millie. Jill is the boy. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's supposed to be like Gilles, oh, like the French be. name. Yeah. It also became clear to me by the second watch through that she is our parallel to Kai. Hmm. I definitely see some parallels to Kai, but I'm intrigued with where you're going with this. We've talked before how, in some ways, Kai's arc mimics Amaro's. Mm -hmm. These episodes give us a lot more of that. Yes. So I'm going to kind of start at the beginning, and I'll loop Miharu back in as we move through it. Okay. First, we have him totally calmly ducking out of a meeting room where Amaro is very professionally explaining uh, some issues that they're having with the new Gundam equipment, uh, what they've done, what they haven't done, what's working, what's not working, etc. In his briefing documents, he has his photo of the crew with Matilda. This is Amaro. Amaro has the yes. photo. As we've noted in previous episodes, the show doesn't just let us forget people who've died. Mm -hmm. We keep being reminded 
reminded of them and of the fact that the crew is still mourning them. Well, and in this briefing, Amuro is sort of describing improvements that he thinks need to be made on the G parts. And the G parts are both something that Matilda brought to the white base at great personal risk. And also, this is a reminder of that last conversation between Amuro and Matilda when she says, you have to build things. And Amuro has always been a tinkerer and an engineer at heart before he became a soldier. And so he's letting a little bit of that come through now. And it reminds him of Matilda. Once Kai gets out into the hall, he is visibly upset. He hits a wall. He must be joking. It looks like they're all determined to be on the ship forever. Basically, they, to Kai's mind, everybody's drunk the Kool-Aid. They're all military people now. Kai has always had a problem with authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't just see anger. I also see fear mm-hmm. in Kai's reaction. He has or feels even less control under the current situation than he felt before. Mm-hmm. And he can't handle it. And this is also a situation, he's also feeling temptation. Because up until now, they've been on the white base, they've been traveling through deserts and across oceans, through battlefields, hostile territory at every point. But now they're finally in a city. They're in friendly territory. He could just leave. It's the first time since leaving Side 7 that Kai could just leave. And to a, to a big degree, we see the return of Mr. Mnya. Because <laughs> he hasn't been all that snarky with people these last few episodes. Uh, we haven't had that same Kai attitude. And here it comes back full force when he's leaving. Because that is his defense mechanism, right? That's how mm-hmm. he deals with mm-hmm. his feelings and his discomfort. And from the briefing in the previous episode in Shah Returns, we know that if Amuro was feeling this, Amuro would say something in the meeting. Amuro would just shout out... You can't do this. You can't make us. How can you expect us to be soldiers? But Kai says, uh, I need to go to the toilet. And he has his little, his breakdown, his pout. He has his... I would say outburst. He does that in the hallway where no one can see him or hear him. And he leaves and he says, you guys were right about me all along. I'm just a useless coward. Time for me to leave like the useless coward that I am. Right. Being a coward lets him off the hook. Uh, We have that nice moment between him and Amaro. Amaro is like, I don't like everything about you, but we've been fighting together a long time. And where the word he uses is nakama, which is used to mean like, it's often used to mean friends, but can just mean like intimates, uh, someone that you're fairly close to. The orphans are watching him. Uh, I will say nobody seems terribly upset (laughs) that Kai is leaving. Although I found it very interesting that afterwards on the bridge, Bright, having told Kai to his face, like, oh, just let him go, uh, says to Mirai, you also think he's a coward, don't you? Mm -hmm. And we never hear Mirai respond. No, it does actually quite a a sharp, surprising cut away from that scene. And the fact that he's asking Mirai this on the bridge feels like he wants validation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like he wants somebody to agree with him that Kai is behaving in a cowardly way. Right. Which would like, to me, that feels as if Bright's not all that sure of how he feels about Kai's behavior. Oh, totally. It's textbook cowardly, but he's not sure that it is cowardly and he wants somebody to help him (laughs) get a grip (laughs) on the situation. Well, and you know, the subtext of that last conversation between Kai and Bright is Kai basically saying, it's not just that I don't want to be a soldier. I don't like how hard you're pushing everybody. I don't like how seriously you're taking this. I don't like your command style. And Bright defends himself in the moment. He says, that's necessary. That's how war works. Everyone else is doing the same thing. And then Kai leaves. And afterwards, Bright talking to Mirai is like, oh, Mirai, you agree. It's just that Kai is a coward. It's not actually, it's not my fault, right? I'm good. My, my command style is, is good, right? Mirai, validate me. Mirai, Mirai, please. <laughs> um, 
even beyond Bright's command style, it's also a comment on the way the Federation has used the white base Mm -hmm. and its crew. Mm -hmm. If there was any doubt about that, we get that nice Xeon parallel throughout these two episodes that I think drives that home because you have Char using his subordinates Mm -hmm. exactly the same way the Federation is using the white base. Yeah. Char sends people out on these missions and then he gets reports that, oh, those mobile suits were destroyed. Those pilots were killed. That submarine was destroyed. And he just sips his tea. He goes, (laughs) yep, that is always how it was going to be. That sounds about right. When people go to fight the white base, they die. Except me. Kai hadn't really wanted to be in this situation in the first place. He was doing what he needed to in the moment and to survive. Because Kai is a survivor. And that's our first link up with Miharu. Mm-hmm. This becomes more and more clear as the episodes continue. It's not at all clear initially, but Miharu is a reluctant spy. <laughs> <laughs> But she's got two small children to take care of in a war-torn world Mm -hmm. and apparently very little means of supporting them. Yeah. And so she has turned spy. Because she, like Kai, is also a survivor. And this is the means by which she is able to survive and take care of her little siblings. What is beautiful to me about their very brief relationship is that from the get-go, Kai acknowledges this about her. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem to realize that it makes them the same, but Kai recognizes it very quickly. Mm -hmm. The moment he sees the gun... He's like, oh, this is bad. Uh, That's unfortunate. Yeah, (laughs) then... But he then tells her information knowing what she will use it for, Mm -hmm. perhaps assuming that she'd be able to find it out anyway and it's not super useful slash dangerous because he tells her that they're going to South America tonight. Mm -hmm. And she seems to acknowledge immediately like, oh, (laughs) you, you know I'm a spy and you're still telling me that. And he and he basically tells her, like, you know, do what you got to do. Your siblings seem nice. I understand. You need to look after them. Because Kai, throughout the course of these two episodes, I think what we're seeing for both Kai and Miharu, but it's mostly about Kai. Miharu goes through a very similar development, but I think her role there is mostly to interpret Kai's and to spur Kai into this. But they're both grappling with this conflict between what's important for the individual Mm -hmm. and what's important for the group, what's Mm -hmm. important in sort of a larger sense. And Kai, at first when I watched this and I saw Kai knowingly giving information about the white base, about his friends, Mm -hmm. to this person who he knows is a Xeon spy, Mm -hmm. at first I couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. It seemed nonsensical. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized like Kai Kai doesn't have anything he can give Miharu to help her, but he wants to help this person and these kids. And he this is a, the one thing he can give her. This is this is the Amaro's toolbox for Kai. He right? has a soft spot for kids. Have you noticed? Yeah, he, he definitely does. More so than any of the other white base characters except Fra. Kai is shown interacting with the orphans in a not quite parent role. But a big brother kind of role. He yeah. scolds them. He goads them. He's very nice to Miharu's siblings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't press them even when he knows their lives to him. Mm-hmm. Then we have the attack begins. He is standing up on the hill, watching it happen, clearly torn, fighting with himself. It's a beautifully directed scene, by the way. This has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with me. Just trying to re- trying to convince himself mm-hmm. because he doesn't feel that and he doesn't believe that. And you have his face with the, the flashing lights on it. And he's remembering all of these experiences on the white base. And he's watching the fighting. Mostly we see Hayato's 
Hayato's struggling, right? Hayato has gone out in the gun cannon because Kai isn't there, and Hayato is not equal to the task. Hayato continues to be basically useless. Like, Aww. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hayato. <laughs> you seem like a fine person, but you have not, like, you have not been a useful member of the team yet. Has he scored any kills? I don't think so. Wow. No, he, Hayato is mostly there to miss. He's, he's destroyed some dops, right? He's blown up some fighters. Okay. As Kai is standing there, totally torn, he has a series of flashbacks, memories of his time aboard the White Base. And here I get a little confused because almost all of them are memories of getting hit. There's the time that Bright punches him in the face. There's the time that Amuro hits him. There's the time that Sela slaps him. There's the time that Ryu hits him. And then there is also the memory of taking the photo with Matilda. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to come up with the reason why you would include that memory with these other memories. What is it they all have in common? Because clearly it's not just times that Kai got hit in the face. Well, there are all times when Kai feels excluded from the group. I was going to say, I think there are all times that Kai felt like he mattered to the group. <laughs> It's a it's a fair distinction. And I think you could read it either way. Because if he didn't matter, no one would care what he said or did. These are all circumstances where he crosses a line and then people pull him back in. He's deserted and is refusing to go back to the white base. And Ryu is hitting him, but also trying to convince <laughs> him to go back. Uh when he mouths off to Sailor Bright and Amuro, he's taking this very individualistic, it has nothing to do with me, it's not my problem, I'm not one of you attitude. And the only reason to try to get him into line is to integrate him in the group. And even with Matilda, you know, he gets caught talking about her behind her back, but she still agrees to do the photo with him and everybody. So these are people who are not content to let Kai mouth off and disappear into the night. <laughs> Well, and in that photo, he is sort of, if you remember the setup for the photo, he takes a picture with this Polaroid camera, but he has to set a timer and then run around to try to get into the frame. And, you know, the picture frame is full of other members of the white base crew, but Kai is only able to make it partway in. And it's kind of a funny moment when it happens, but Kai is only able to get like the top half of his body into the frame of the photo. And so that's a situation where he's sort of marginal, liminal. He's on the edge and he both wants to be part of the group, but also resists that urge, resists the, the gravity of the group. Each of those times Kai was slapped or was hit um, that he remembers, including the photo, it's all about people who were then doing something very dangerous for the good of the group. When Sela slaps Kai, it's in the second episode. It's really the first major scene with either of those characters. And it's Sela and Frabo who are about to go out into a stricken dying colony to look for any last survivors, which as Nina pointed out when we talked about it on the podcast, is an incredibly dangerous and foolhardy thing for them to do, but they do it without a second thought. And Kai, who has only just survived and made it to the white base, takes this attitude of that is an incredibly dangerous and reckless thing to do. <laughs> Are you crazy? And Sayla slaps him for it. When Bright hits him, it's because Amuro is doing this very dangerous maneuver to try to make contact with Federation HQ. And Kai is just sort of joking about how Amuro is probably going to die. And when Ryu hits him, it's right after Kai has abandoned the white base along with Hayato and a couple of others. And it's right before Ryu goes out in his suicidal final attack. Matilda, that's the episode when Matilda dies. These are all times when someone else in the white base crew was putting their own life on the line for the sake of the group. 
And then, in possibly my favorite moment of the episode, Kai says to himself, maybe I am a coward, and then goes to borrow a motorcycle so he can speed into town and join the fight. <laughs> yep. He saves Hayato's butt. He does. Uh, in fact... <laughs> This is another nice parallel to Amuro, because remember when Amuro came back from his prolonged sulk in the desert, Amuro saved Kai in the gun cannon, who was being grappled by the goof. Now Kai returns from his much shorter sulk to save Hayato, also in the gun cannon, being grappled by the new Zagok. Did you notice our brief cameo appearance by Pinocchio? I did. Uh, when Kai gets blasted off of his motorcycle, there's a little Pinocchio in the rubble of the town. This one with its tongue sticking out. Again, making an obvious parallel to Amuro and giving us a sense that Kai has closed a chapter in his life. Kai has experienced a moment of personal development. Way, way back. One of the early interactions between Amuro and Kai, Kai had just mm, yeah, Amuro a little bit. And Amuro says, don't talk like that. Aren't you supposed to be an adult? And this is maybe the moment when Kai really completes that journey. He gets some excellent teamwork in with Amuro, and at the end of a successful combat, returns to the white base. The best part of which, of course, is everyone's reactions to him. <laughs> Amuro seems a little nonplussed. Partly that's because Kai's like, oh, I tried to sell your tools and they told me they were junk. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, is, is that so? <laughs> but he does seem surprised to see Kai. Yeah. Sela seemed perhaps the least must by Kai's leaving and is the least must by his return, <laughs> seeming to indicate that Sela knew he'd be back. Yeah, Sela knew all along. Sela knew this was a temporary condition and Kai would be right back with them again. Hayato's response is the best, though. <laughs> he wasn't there when Kai left initially, but when Kai comes back, Hayato looks very grumpy about it. I think probably for Hayato, this means being relegated back to the gun tank. He will not be piloting the gun cannon again. Also, <laughs> he goes from being the third worst pilot to the fourth worst pilot. It's also clear Kai's not going to be punished. Kai also makes a comment, which doesn't bother anyone else, but says, oh, I saw how you guys were struggling and I had <laughs> to come back to help, uh, which seems to hurt Hayato's pride a little bit. Yeah. But I think that moment of, well, I guess I am a coward. I'm going to go do this anyway, <laughs> is Miharu right before she gets on the gun parry. Mm. She's been a pawn. She is suddenly confronted with the fact that the things that she's doing to help her own family are causing harm to other people, to yeah. other children. Yeah. And this isn't just for her about helping those three kids. This is about a sense of making amends for the harm, even though she's not sure exactly what that harm is, that she's caused by being a spy. Yeah. I mean, Kai has that moment when he says to her, if the white base gets shot down right now, well, you're going to die too. Mm -hmm. We both will. And then later she sees the kids. Yeah, this is a moment when she is directly confronted with the consequences of her actions. Because, you know, for however many months she's been sending intelligence to Xeon. And she's probably never seen what that means. There haven't been attacks on Belfast. The ships that she's reporting on, you know, they go away somewhere and maybe they get destroyed, but she doesn't see it. She doesn't know what's happening. She hasn't met those soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you notice when I thought this was really, really nice when Kai is watching the battle before he decides to go back, we get some cutaways to what's happening in the battle. And we see this back and forth between Hayato and the pilot of the Zagak and they're fighting and talking. And the audio for that is actually it's a little bit quieter than it should be. It's a little bit quieter than the audio in the rest of the episode, creating very subtly, but creating this sense of distance mm. so that we know we know we are not actually watching this fight. We are watching Kai watch this fight. Mm -hmm. And all the shots of Kai are like his face. We watch the watcher, not the events. When Kai joins that battle, they give him one of the like upbeat jazzy battle songs that we typically associate with Amuro joining a fight. Mm -hmm. They give him the hero music yeah. for this fight. And then Miharu sneaks aboard before the white base can leave. I do want to talk before that about her goodbye with her two little siblings. There was something about it I noticed, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Because when Miharu hugs them goodbye, their sister, her little sister, says something like, the, if it's perfume or smell, you smell like mom. Mm -hmm. And Miharu apologizes, and she starts crying. The girl is not sad. The girl is smiling when she says that. Mm -hmm. the, for, the, for the little sister, this is a happy memory. And for Miharu, it's a tragic one. Miharu says to them, I'm sorry for reminding you, almost as if she thinks they're young enough that maybe it's better for them if they don't remember their parent. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have that option. <laughs> she was already almost full grown, but she might, you know, wrongheaded as it might sound to some of us, think that they'd be better off if they didn't remember yeah. so that they didn't have that sense of loss. It seems like she wants to protect them from all of this, protect them from the knowledge of the war and the loss and all the, the hurt and the pain and the consequences. And yet in the same breath, she's telling them to hide the money very carefully. Yep. Use it carefully. Never tell anyone where it is. And she leaves them behind. It's not hard to understand her motivations in doing that. They've been barely scraping by. They're in a war zone. She has this hope that if she can just do this one last job, they'll make enough money to go somewhere safe, somewhere else. But that was one of the other things that struck me about this goodbye the second time around and made it feel so doomed. She's talking about coming back and, and we'll go somewhere where there's no war. That place doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a fairy tale. It's a fantasy. Yeah. It's not real. It's not a real promise she can make. Well, and what was her plan to get home? I think she was lured in by this fantasy. She didn't think it through. And Char. Char being like, oh, what's his plan for getting in touch with the spy now that he's embedded her in the white base? He's the one who said, <laughs> I want you to have that spy get on the white base. Yeah, I, I wonder if that was a, a consistency thing or a translation thing or or what? Because it does seem a little weird that Shar gives this order and then later in the next episode acting like he didn't give that order. I mean, possibly he thought they would get the spy out before the ship actually took off. Possibly, I mean, not even possibly. Shar doesn't care what happens to their spy. No, not in the least. <laughs> and so better for them to have someone embedded and deal with the problem of how to contact them later. And Shar very clearly sees this as someone else's problem. <laughs> but yeah. I love that when Kai finds her, he doesn't believe for a minute that she's there for him. No. <laughs> and is not upset Kai's... about it when she lies. <laughs> Kai is not easily flattered. 
And Miharu is not a particularly effective seductress, right? If she's trying to pull that um, femme fatale sort of... Well, or even just pretend to be a love-struck girl. (laughs) Right. She she really can't pull it off. But Kai Kai tries to help her. Kai tries to protect her. Right. And he, he tells her, even though it puts all of them in danger, this has nothing to do with you. Stay here. Uh, despite his warning to her that, well, if they attack us here, we're all dead, you included. Mm-hmm. Uh, she still does give them information, though that's later when she's trying to convince Kai to let her fight. And she's saying, this is all my fault. He's like, it's really not. <laughs> The information you gave them is not why they're attacking us now. He's wrong about that, though, because we have that scene between Flanagan and Shar, where Shar is like, oh, so they're headed to South America, not to Africa. Mm-hmm. I'm here on the Africa front waiting for them, but they're not coming here. And Flanagan says, well, in that case, allow me to take that mobile armor and go attack them right now. So it is literally because Miharu told them that the white base was headed for South America, that they're being attacked right there. You're probably right. That wasn't how I thought of the interaction in that moment. Because Flanagan goes on to say, you know, they've taken out four of our mobile suits. I don't want revenge exactly, <laughs> but... There's a good chance he would have attacked anyway. That's fair. He presents as his reasons their failures to date in dealing with the white base, not, oh, they're veering off on a different course. I have to go catch them now. I think both of those are in play in that scene, but... But you're right. I think that they probably would have attacked anyway. This scene also presents us with another opportunity for a romantic pratfall. Denied. (laughs) Uh, The white base is struck by an explosion. Miharu and Kai both fall to the ground, not on top of each other. (laughs) What a waste. Nuts. As they are about to get on the gun parry, Kai tells the orphans, who've just been caught in a blast and are badly bruised, uh, but are taking a fire extinguisher to go help put out fires around the ship. He tells them, you're brave and strong, which is almost exactly what Miharu told her siblings before she left. Ooh. This is the point where, for Miharu, personal falls away and gets replaced because she realizes how much more is at stake than just her own life and just her own siblings back home. And she says this to Kai. She says something like, how can I live with myself if I put these children in danger in order to protect my siblings? And Kai argues against it, right? Kai is still trying to protect Miharu. And he says, you know, go back. Don't do this. It's dangerous. Go back to your room. Put Basically, on a life at every preserver. point. Yeah. Well, when when she first gets up to go to the back of the gun parry and try to deal with the missiles, he's like, no, it's not safe. Don't go back there. Yeah. And where was her life preserver then? I It wouldn't have helped. I know. And then they do something very interesting at the end. It's not entirely new because when Matilda died, Amaro found himself having flashbacks to some of his interactions with her. But it is different in that previously when we've seen flashbacks, they've all been of scenes that we've already seen. Right. This flashback is something we hadn't seen. This is Kai walking with Miharu to her house when she's first invited him to come stay. And she's talking about her siblings and how things can't be horrible forever. They'll have a better life than we did. Things can't be like this forever, can they? There's a slightly different art style Mm -hmm. used for part of it where they show a profile of her face. And it looks a bit more like a painting. Yeah. And... The most horrible part of this scene is that Kai has to grieve alone. No one else knew her. This isn't Ryu or Matilda. This isn't somebody they all knew and can grieve together. Yeah, this is that personal versus group thing coming around again. Kai is part of the group. He's made that choice. He's gone back. But he's also alone, even now. 
in the scene where Miharu dies, when she goes down to pull the lever, we talked back in episode 1.22, the episode where Matilda died, about how the episode did a very bad job of conveying the sense of threat that made Matilda's intervention necessary. It didn't really feel like the Doms had that much of an advantage over the Gundam. It didn't really feel like the jet stream attack was working that well. Or that the white base was in that much danger. It didn't really feel like it was necessary. This episode knocks it out of the park on that one. Yes. This episode gives us absolute desperation and the feeling that Miharu going down and pulling that lever, even though that meant dying, was the only thing, the only thing that could have saved everyone in that situation. The Gundam is basically disabled. It's trapped under the water fighting the Grabro. The G-Fighter has been shot down. Hayato's core fighter is out of ammunition. The white base is getting chewed up. The One of the catapults has been destroyed. We saw three of the hangar crew killed in blasts. There's nothing else they can do. Even the gun parry has been damaged. That desperation is so keen. It, the danger is real. There's a real sense that the team making the show is learning how to do a lot of these things as they go along. A lot of these emotional beats get repeated, and the second time they happen, they're done better. You know, the sacrifice that Iselina Eschenbach makes when she's trying to get revenge versus when Haman does the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, and here that the sacrifice by Ryu and then the sacrifice by Matilda and now the sacrifice by Miharu, each one, you know, shows the development, the evolution of these storytelling tools that for a giant robot anime in this era, this hadn't really been done before. This was stuff they were having to invent as they went along. Each of these episodes opens with a brief shot that gives us a sense of scale. In Belfast, in the first episode, we get a shot of civilians rebuilding the town. And in the Atlantic Ocean, in the second episode, we get a very brief scene of Char's squadron destroying a Federation carrier group. It shows, of course, that the war is still going, that things are still quite desperate for the, for the Federation even after Odessa Day. It shows us what Char is up to. Um, and I think from this, we can maybe draw some ideas about why the white base went west instead of going east after they first arrived on North America, because it really feels like the Atlantic Ocean is just crawling with the Xeon submarines and the Federation has no meaningful military presence here. Speaking of scale, the size of the mobile armor compared to the mobile suits. The Grabbro is enormous. Yeah. It is so much bigger than the Gundam. Yeah. And I, it's red, so I assume it was meant for Char. And it's so fast and it can travel further, operate longer. It's like a hybrid between a, a submarine and a mobile suit. I really thought that scene at the beginning where Amaro was talking about the shield having to drop off the side of the G-Fighter and how it's not properly defended during that transformation, which then gets mentioned in the intro narration for the next episode. Mm -hmm. I really thought that was foreshadowing something. I really thought that we were going to get a scene of the G-Fighter or the G-Armor or whatever being hit on that side during transformation. Oh, see, I think it's foreshadowing the introduction of a new shield Chan uh, or like a double shield Chan because Amaro 
mentions he thinks Futatsu the, no shield. He thinks the solution to this is to have some kind of connector so that you can like connect and disconnect the two shields. Um, so you can have one on each side when that's needed, when the Gundam is part of the G armor, and then combine them into a single shield when you need to drop the one on the side. Uh, I, you know, any excuse <laughs> to have them to have people buy more Gundam accessories, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, we know you already have shield A, but do you have shield B? <laughs> I'm going to be so proud of myself if that ends up being a thing. <laughs> One final note, and I don't know what to think about this, but I noticed during this arc, we meet one Irish person, Miharu Ratoki, and then we meet a bunch of Xeon people operating in the Irish theater who have names like Mulligan, Flanagan, Connolly, Boone. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird that all of these space noids operating around Ireland have (laughs) Celtic names, names, and the actual Irish person has a name that is half Japanese, half question mark. I don't know where (laughs) Ratoki comes from. It's the future, Tom. Don't ask questions. In the first of these two episodes, Tom was particularly struck by the conversation that Kai has with Amaro and Bright as he is leaving the ship, that it felt a little strange, a little stilted maybe, and so he asked me to dig into the translation. Uh, It turns out it's a fairly one-to-one translation, it's quite direct, uh, but there are a couple of words that I wanted to talk about in it. Uh, The first is moody. Uh, When I learned this word, it was always just defined as impossible. So when Kai and Bright use it in this scene, I thought they meant working at an impossible level, pushing people to do the impossible. It turns out there are some additional uh, meanings with additional nuance. Uh, Other meanings of Muri are explicitly to do with feelings, unreasonable, unnatural, unjustifiable, (laughs) and specifically to do with work, excessive work, immoderate work, to work too hard, to try too hard. Uh, So when Kai says you can't win by pushing people too hard, that is very close to exactly what is said in Japanese. Uh, The next one is ze. When Kai expresses this idea to Bright, he ends his sentence with ze. Ze is a masculine sentence-ending particle. Um, Particles are... I don't even know how to explain them (laughs) using (laughs) English grammar, but it's part of a Japanese sentence. Uh, In this case, when you put it at the end of a sentence... Typically, only men use it, and it can add force or emphasis to the sentence. It can also make a sentence sound threatening or ironic. Hmm. Uh, in one dictionary I looked at, they even translated it as <laughs> So it's a little like ending a sentence with nye. Yes, actually. It's <laughs> the ultimate Kai sentence-ending particle. But this backs up one of the things Tom talked about in our talkback, that it really feels like Kai is trying to warn Bright. That the way that they're working, that the way the Federation is making them work and the way that Bright is making them work is ineffective, is going to burn everyone out. It's unsustainable. Uh, Finally, I'm pretty sure when Kai says he's been pushed to his limit, I say pretty sure because I don't have a perfect ear and I had to listen to this scene maybe a dozen times (laughs) (laughs) to try to catch all the words. Uh, But I think Kai says, Genkai Wataru? which is a little different than necessarily being pushed to his limit. Genkai is limit, and Wataru is to cross over. 
I looked up other expressions that use genkai, and there are plenty that say, I've reached my limit. I've arrived at my limit. <laughs> you know, um, I saw quite a few that use the verb kuru, which is to come. So like, I've come to my limit. Mm -hmm. I came to my limit. So they specifically chose to use wataru here to express that Kai hasn't just reached his limit. He's already pushed past it. He's already crossed to the other side of it. <laughs> And maybe that connects to later on when he talks about himself as being a coward, as being, you know, this useless person. And he's already doing more than a person like him is really capable of doing. And perhaps is even a way for him to sort of justify himself to everyone else that he's talking to. Because it's not just that he reached some self-defined limit and is like, all right, that's it, I'm done. It's I've already gone above and beyond. I've already done more. I've already crossed whatever limits I thought I had. And it's still not enough. <laughs> it's not enough for you people. What do you want from me? Yeah. I thought what you were saying about Muri is very interesting because uh, like an episode or two back, Amuro is practicing the docking sequence and Bright wants him to do it even faster. Mm -hmm. And someone says, oh, it's impossible. And the Bright says, not for Amuro, it's not. And he says something like, you know, even if it's Muri, it's not Muri for Amuro. Mm -hmm. And the English translation they use there is like, even if it's impossible, Amuro can do it. Which is a little, sounds a little weirder than to say, like, even if it's inconceivable, it's not inconceivable for Amaro. Right. Even if it's an unreasonable expectation, not for Amaro. Mm-hmm. The Xeon infiltrators enter the white base undetected by using a plane stolen from a fishery union on what the show calls the Verde Islands. And we can be pretty sure they mean the islands of Cape Verde off the western coast of Africa. This might not mean anything. Those islands are conveniently near to the white base's flight path and close to the Africa front of the war to which Shar has been assigned. So maybe that's the only reason they're mentioned. But then again, the recent history of Cape Verde as of the making of First Gundam is so on theme that it would cause me physical pain not to share it with you now. <laughs> because Cape Verde had, only four years before First Gundam aired, finally won independence from its colonial masters in Portugal after a 20-year struggle to escape an autocratic government that treated its colonial possessions as mere economic frontiers to be exploited for the benefits of the elites living on Earth. I mean, Portugal, obviously, living on Earth in Portugal. You know, as opposed to Space Portugal. These episodes give us our first glimpse of submarines in the Universal Century, and what submarine warfare is like. The second of the two also shows us Xeon forces wreaking havoc in the Atlantic. To look a bit more at the tactics of submarine warfare, specifically air-to-sub, and the World War II context of what we're seeing, I've focused on the Battle of the Atlantic. That's right, it is considered one battle, <laughs> lasting from 1939 to 1945. <laughs> I can't get over that. I can't get over how wild that is, that that's one battle. <laughs> At the start of World War II, many navies were completely unprepared to deal with submarine warfare, despite having very up-to-date subs themselves. A big part of this was due to what's called the Mahanian Doctrine, named for a naval officer and historian, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who argued that navies should focus on destroying or neutralizing enemy fleets rather than stifling enemy commercial shipping. Which is why, when the Germans focused on destroying commercial shipping, the Allies were not prepared. It flew in the face of accepted naval tactics. 
and it took some time to come up with strategies for dealing with it. The convoy system that became standard later in the war, for instance, uh, various other tactics related to convoys and improvements, you know, grouping ships by speed so faster ships weren't being slowed down, uh, doing fewer larger convoys, which were discovered to be safer since what mattered was actually the size of the escort, things like that. It also took some time to solve the problem of the Atlantic Gap, which was also known as the Black Pit, <laughs> uh, the area beyond the range of land-based aircraft. So you had this huge portion in the mid-Atlantic that you couldn't reach from either shore with aircraft. This was closed, but not until 1943, uh, through the use of improvised carriers in convoys, increased construction of purpose-built ships, and the development of long-range aircraft. Most relevant to these episodes, there were numerous new technologies that helped planes find and destroy subs. Any one of these technologies could be a research piece on its own, explaining the science behind how it works and the history of its development. But for now, I'm going to do more of a survey of the relevant tech with links to more detailed info for the curious among you. There were many improvements in radar technology, including the use of seaborne and airborne radar to find submarines that had surfaced. Night was the safest time for U-boats to surface, and so many technologies were focused on catching them unawares at this vulnerable time. Another was the Laylight, a ridiculously powerful 24-inch diameter carbon arc searchlight. Air-to-surface vessel radar had a minimum range of one kilometer, and a pilot could lose the target on the radar before being able to physically spot them. Just before losing the target on radar, they would turn on the searchlight. The U-boat wouldn't have time to dive, and the bombardier had a clear view of the target. This was so effective that U-boats started surfacing during the daytime instead. <laughs> they had to surface to charge their batteries, and in the daytime, at least they could see aircraft coming. Hmm. Uh, there were some back-and-forth radar developments, and who had the upper hand changed a few times throughout battle. Uh, for a while, U-boats could detect a nearby aircraft using radar, uh, usually with enough time to dive safely. Then the Allies changed to a new, different, and less detectable radar, and back-and-forth a bit. Another technology that saw a lot of use was high-frequency direction finding, which could be used to locate submarines based on their radio transmissions. It is estimated to have contributed to 24% of all U-boat sinkings during the war. Wow. Uh, it basically works. I mean, in the photos, it's just a box <laughs> with antennas sticking off of it. And the antennas, the antenna are put at slightly different positions. And then the differences in how those two antenna pick up the radio signal can be used to triangulate the position of the radio signal. <laughs> uh, because high frequency direction finding is a very long name. It's also called HFDF or HUFDUF. <laughs> uh, Yet another technology that saw a lot of use was Magnetic Anomaly Detection, or MAD for short, which was designed to detect tiny variations in the Earth's magnetic field and was repurposed to find submarines. Since subs are essentially a mass of ferromagnetic material, they actually create disturbances in the magnetic field that are detectable under the right conditions. And if you remember when I was talking about naval mines last episode, that is one of the ways that naval mines can detect a nearby ship. So these improvements that I've talked about so far are all in detection, but there were also improvements to weaponry. Uh, most relevant for air-to-sub attacks, the Mark 24 mine, which was actually an airdropped passive acoustic homing torpedo. They called it a mine so that during its development, nobody would suspect what it ah, actually was. <laughs> clever. Uh, it was also called Fido, <laughs> presumably because you send it to fetch. <laughs> 
Uh, these had an impressive success rate. Of 204 torpedoes launched at submarines, 55 hit their targets, with 37 of those U-boats sinking. That's a lot. Yes. I've been reading about a lot of naval battles in World War II, and there is no single phrase with which I am more familiar now than fired a torpedo, but it missed. U-boats really struggled to deal with attacks from the air. Their deck guns were very effective against aircraft, but not enough so to deal with whole convoys. Uh, eventually, the snorkel was developed, which allowed the U-boat to charge its batteries while remaining submerged. But while the snorkel was deployed, movement speed was greatly limited. For the most part, aircraft were greatly disruptive to any U-boat missions, forcing them to dive and hide until they felt it was safe to come up again. One last point that surprised me, the first recorded sinking of a submarine by another submarine while both were submerged was not until 1945. Hmm, that's pretty late. Now I'm picturing it like uh, the classic strategy game, like axes, spears, swords thing, but with planes, oh. submarines, <laughs> and ships. But planes beat everything. Yes. <laughs> this is a very unbalanced game, Nina. I have um, some constructive criticism. Obviously, there's a lot more to submarine tactics, especially when it came to you know, ships that were involved in convoys and hunter-killer groups, which were groups of ships specifically out to find and destroy submarines. Uh, but because most of what we see in these episodes is like aircraft destroying ships and submarines, I've focused on that here. Um, the other stuff may come up later or in other seasons. A short note on the easy type configuration of the G whatever, <laughs> that is attaching a core fighter to the G fighter's wings and thrusters, creating the G sky. If this configuration includes the Gundam's leg bits, then it's the G sky, but if it doesn't, then it's the G sky easy, which is sometimes written as easy the word and sometimes as the letters EZ. That name stuck out to me because there was, to my mind, no particular reason why this version should be any easier than any other. And I was also sure that I had heard about easy type configurations in the real world at some point in some context. So after some digging, I came up with two possible origins for this terminology. First, World War II. The most widely used of the Allied medium tanks of the war was the US-made M4 Sherman. The Sherman was cheap and reliable, so the US produced a staggering 49,000 of them throughout the war. That's more than half of all US-made tanks during the war. But they weren't all the same basic M4 that they started with. Throughout the war, US military designers introduced various advancements and experimented with new tech, all based on that same Sherman platform. This led eventually to the M4A3 76mm HVSSW, more commonly known as the M4A3E8, or even more commonly known as the Easy 8 called Easy both because Easy was the equivalent of E in the Allies' phonetic alphabet of the time, so think like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, except back then it was Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, Easy, and so on. Also, because the EZ-8 had a new suspension, which gave it a comparatively smooth and easy ride. The E in EZ-8 stands for experimental. So since the G-Sky EZ is an experimental configuration of the G-Sky, maybe that's where the name comes from. I believe in the episode, Amuro gives the reason for the slightly different configuration as being, then you don't tie up the Gundam B parts in some other machine, you can still send out the Gundam. Whereas in the original suggested configuration, you've got half of one of your most <laughs> powerful weapons flying about up in the air. Right. And I think he suggests using the core fighter 
from either the gun cannon or the gun tank, which in theory would take either one of those out of the picture. But come on, it's the gun cannon and the gun tank. That's just, they're just not as valuable as the Gundam. They've also just like over and over been shown to have less utility. If they're not fighting on the ground, neither of those is as useful. They don't have, they can't balance on the top of a fighter plane <laughs> <laughs> like the Gundam and the G fighter uh, and apparently can't go underwater and the Gundam can. So <laughs> the alternative possibility for the name easy for that configuration is actually from aviation, specifically what is called the canard design. So in this context, canard means an airplane with a small forward wing set in front of the larger main wing. And that's as opposed to the more conventional setup where the main wing is in the front and then the, there is a small stabilizing tail wing or tail plane at the back. Now, some of the earliest planes, including the first Wright Flyer, used the canard layout, but the configuration never really took off. There were experimental canard fighters developed before World War II that looked like they came from a Flash Gordon sci-fi story, and they used their propellers to push the planes instead of pulling them as was used in the actually successful fighters. There were a bunch of problems with the canard layout. One of the main advantages of it is that if you put the propeller at the back, then you can put the guns in the front and not worry about the propeller. They found other better ways to deal with that, and the canard designs fell out of favor, but the Italians, the Americans, and the Japanese all had canard designs. But none of them made it past the prototype stage. So the canard, as a concept, languished in obscurity for a while, until it enjoyed a resurgence in... And you are going to be shocked when I tell you this, the late 1960s and through the 1970s. You don't say. <laughs> the advent of the jet engine and computer-assisted stabilization fixed a lot of the early canard problems. Now, the G-Sky is indisputably a canard design, where the wings of the core fighter serve as the forewing, and the wings of the G-whatever parts form the main wing at the back. All right, so we've established that the G-Sky is a canard-based plane, but where does Easy come in? During this late 60s, mid-70s revival of the canard, an American aerospace engineer named Bert Rutan developed a series of build-at-home personal airplanes. So the company manufactures the parts, ships them to you, you assemble it yourself. <laughs> They're less dangerous than they sound, but also dangerous. I believe John Denver died in one of these. Oh my uh, God. Died, died in a crash. So these built at home planes and used the canard design. And one of them, first flown in 1975, was called the Rutan Very Easy. <laughs> and a slightly larger version, flown in 79, was called the Long Easy. Given the design similarities and the name similarities, I think it's very possible that Okawara or whoever else was working on the G-whatever's various configurations was also looking at modern aircraft design and saw the canard layout on the Very Easy and the Long Easy series. Seems totally reasonable. I'm just imagining the bravery of a person who would fly a plane that they built at home. <laughs> <laughs> And not just built at home, you would have had to set up your own runway, or I guess you could take it to an airfield. I, I don't know. I can't even picture how this works. I, I mean, there are a lot of like, there are a lot of small local airfields that a person could take a plane to. I don't know. I've never done it. I had a culture note that I wanted to talk about in this episode. I couldn't find any sources on this, <laughs> but anecdotally, I've heard a lot of stories along the lines of police in Japan lend someone enough money for subway fare and the person is sure to return the next day and pay it back. And similar kinds of stories involving the temporary loan of a bicycle or an umbrella in a situation where you desperately need <laughs> one of those things. Not to say that theft doesn't happen in Japan, it absolutely does, but there's also a good bit of trust. 
We see this come up twice in A Spy on Board, when Connolly takes a bicycle to go meet Miharu, and when Kai takes a motorcycle to get down to the white base. Uh, in this particular case, I doubt either person got their property back, <laughs> because why would Connolly care? And I'm pretty sure Kai wrecked that motorcycle. <laughs> but the people who lent those things would have had a reasonable expectation of getting them back. I don't have anything else to add to that. Just since it comes up twice in a single episode, I thought I would talk about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it did seem like something that to an audience that's not as familiar with Japanese culture might seem strange. Last week, we talked about the new Xeon GOG mobile suit and its possible design influences. And I explained how I think it may be based on the appearance of early pro resu or professional wrestling performers in Japan. I will leave a full discussion of the fascinating history of pro wrestling, its evolution from traveling carnival shows in the US, the international and inter-style matches of the pre-war years, and its golden age beginning with the advent of television in the 1950s, as well as the unique history and character of Japan's pro resu, all of that for another time. We are definitely going to be coming back to it in 2022. <laughs> so I still think that the Gogs were inspired by the popular, especially then, practice of tag team wrestling, and possibly by a specific tag team, but I'm not yet certain which one. If you don't know, tag team is a style of wrestling peculiar to professional wrestling performances, where teams of multiple wrestlers, usually two to a team, although more is possible, perform the match. Only one wrestler is officially allowed to compete at a time, at least according to the rules, but this is pro wrestling we're talking about, so habitual rule breaking is as much a part of the performance as the rules themselves. The first possibility for the GOG inspiration is a pair of brothers, Arthur, who wrestled as Afa, and Sika, a Noai, known as the Wild Samoans, or simply the Samoans. Arthur was born in November 1942, making him a little less than one year younger than Tomino, in what was then called Western Samoa and is now the independent state of Samoa. Sika was born three years later, in what was then and is now American Samoa. They later moved to the U.S. mainland and both began working as professional wrestlers. They would go on to become famous throughout the U.S., especially as a tag team, and for their gimmick of portraying themselves as ferocious wild men who communicated entirely in grunts, ate raw fish during interviews, had long, unkempt hair, wore sarongs, and so on and so on. They were reputedly so dedicated to maintaining this gimmick that they kept it up even while being questioned by police officers in connection with Hulk Hogan's unregistered gun. <laughs> They first came to prominence in the US in 1979, which seems to be when they first adopted the whole wild Samoans gimmick. But they had by that point already enjoyed a successful career on the regional circuit in Canada and briefly in Japan. In January 1978, in a pair of major tag team matches in Osaka and Tokyo, they won and then lost the International Wrestling Alliance World Tag Team title from the pro resu legend Great Kusatsu and his most recent tag team partner, Animal Hamaguchi. So, evidence in favor of Afa and Sika Anoa'i having influenced the GOG? They were a big deal in wrestling in Japan during Gundam's development, and they would have gotten a big promotional push right around when ok Okawara would have been designing Mecha for Gundam. They were particularly fond of that claw hands position in promotional photos, which might have possibly inspired the GOG's clawed hands, and their skin and hair coloration is close to that of the GOG. And now, the other possibility the famous Japanese tag team of Rikidozan and Toyonobori. These two aren't so much a tag team as they are the tag team. 
Riki Dozan in particular is the father of Pro Resu, and Toyonoburi, although he never managed to climb out of Riki Dozan's shadow, was his loyal second. Both men came to professional wrestling after starting out as sumo wrestlers, but we're talking sumo wrestlers in the 1940s and 50s when the aesthetic was very different, so we're talking about big, strong, nimble, athletic men rather than today's unstoppable juggernauts pushing the upper limits of human mass. Both men were around 5'9 and around 250 pounds. For our non-American listeners, that's about 175 centimeters and a bit over 110 kilograms. And for our English listeners, we're talking about 18 stone. Riki Dozan was born in 1924 and Toyo Nobori in 1931. That means both of them were of age to be soldiers in World War II, and it really seems like the only reason they weren't is because they were sumo wrestlers. They both switched over to pro wrestling in the early 1950s. Riki Dozan being older and having made the switch first trained Toyonobori. Besides being a little younger, Toyonobori was also a bit shorter, a bit heavier, and a lot less charismatic. He wrestled from 1953 until 1973 and died in 1998 due to heart failure. Riki Dozan, on the other hand, was the Frank Sinatra of Pro Resu. <laughs> he put on mind-blowing performances, he drank hard, he gambled hard, he socialized constantly. He owned a nine-story Riki Sports Palace in Shibuya with a bowling alley, billiards room, bar, and restaurant, and he was working on building a country club. He would show up to restaurants covered in blood with open wounds from his matches and joke with waiters about having a tough day at the office. And as time wore on and the injuries added up, he also started abusing painkillers. In the ring, he was famous for his strong chopping blows, which he called a karate chop and claimed to have learned from Masoyama, the founder of Kyokushin. He once wrestled against Kimura, and yeah, that Kimura, the famous one, the one who broke Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend Helio Gracie's arm and for whom a BJJ submission is named. And Riki Dozan knocked the famous judoka out with a chop to the neck. Supposedly, this was meant to be a worked match that would end in a draw and set up a series of rematches. But for some reason, Riki Dozan instead turned it into a shoot or real match without Kimura's knowledge, knocking him out when he was only supposed to knock him back. There's an amazing photo from this fight, which I will, of course, include in the show notes. I wonder if the reason we wound up with the karate chop in American pop culture is because of this guy, is because enough American immigrants or soldiers living in Japan at the time saw this guy perform or saw TV, you know, TV broadcasts of his fights and, and brought this idea of a karate chop back with them. Well, he wrestled in the U.S. too. Pro wrestling at this point was very international, and there was a lot of travel back and forth between Japan and the U.S. Okay, so we might owe pro wrestling for the idea of a karate chop. In the end, Riki Dozan died in the most Riki Dozan way. While at a nightclub and assuredly drunk, probably high, Riki Dozan accused a man named Murata of stepping on his shoe. When Murata refused to apologize, Riki Dozan threw him into a wall, then straddled his chest and began smashing his face. He only stopped when Murata stabbed him in the abdomen. Riki Dozan was rushed to a hospital and stitched up, but his condition worsened, and despite a second surgery, he died a week later, in December 1963, at 39 years old. There are two versions of the why for this part of the story. Either it was because Riki Dozan ignored his doctor's orders and immediately started eating sushi and drinking sake within hours of his abdominal surgery. Oh my god. The most Riki Dozan way to die. Or it was because Murata, who was a member of the Yakuza, was actually ordered to kill Riki Dozan as revenge for crossing Kimura during their match. And so he used a poisoned blade, allegedly. 
That's the version, by the way, that appears in Kimura's own autobiography. <laughs> wow, okay. I didn't realize Kimura had Yakuza ties. He did. I probably shouldn't be surprised. Murata, by the way, served a fairly lengthy prison sentence for that. When he was released, he immediately went to apologize to Riki Dozan's family. And he has continued to go on the anniversary of Riki Dozan's death every year to apologize to the family. He is reportedly now a quite high-ranking member of the Yakuza. All right, so evidence in favor of Riki Dozan and Toyonobori being the inspiration for the Gogs. Their stature in Japan was far and away the greatest of any pro reshu performers of the time. Riki Dozan in particular was a national hero. His televised matches drew some of the biggest audiences in Japanese history. One in particular was watched by 87% of households with a TV. <laughs> As a tag team, Riki Dozan and Toyonobori wore black trunks, similar to those on the GOG. As former sumo wrestlers, their proportions resembled those of the GOG, and the GOG's body-spear-type attack resembles a sumo's initial headbutting charge called Tachi-ai. They won many different championship belts, some of which resembled the GOG's beam cannons, and Riki Dozan in particular had a bronze skin tone, a little bit like the GOG's coloring. I couldn't find any evidence of them doing the claw hands pose, but perhaps his famous chopping attacks inspired that part of the GOG's design. I want to leave with one final note about Riki Dozan, the father of Japan's Puroresu. He became a national hero throughout Japan for his high-profile victories both in Japan and internationally against American wrestlers. This was the 1950s. Japan was only just coming out of US occupation. The occupation ended in 52, the year after Riki Dozan started wrestling. And the Japanese people desperately needed their own national hero. They needed a Japanese person who could be strong and uncompromising and stand up to the Americans. I've read descriptions of Riki Dozan's first major victory against a prominent American wrestler, the masked villain called The Destroyer, and they talk about it as being for the Japanese like watching the whole Pacific War fought over again, only with a different outcome. Uncomfortable. But Riki Dozan would not, by Japanese standards then or now, be considered Japanese. Though he kept this a secret his entire life, Riki Dozan was born Kim Sin Rak in a province of what is now North Korea but was then Japanese Korea. He was adopted by a Japanese family, and for the rest of his life, he claimed to have been born in Nagasaki. His true origin would not come out until 1984, 20 years after his death. It's worth noting that Riki Dozan was actually a pretty successful sumo wrestler, participating in 23 tournaments, winning 135 matches, and rising to the rank of Sekiwake. Sekiwake is the third highest rank in sumo, and the highest you can reach merely by winning consistently. Promotion to the next rank, Ozeki, requires the judging commission's favor, and it is very likely that Riki Dozan left sumo for pro wrestling because his Korean origins were known or suspected, and he knew that he would never be promoted no matter how well he performed. For Miharu, Ely Dear, written by Fred E. Weatherly, set to the old Irish tune, Londonderry Air. After all, the world won't be this awful forever, will it?
Oh, Ely dear, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From glen to glen and down the mountainside, the summer's gone and all the roses falling. It's I, it's I must go, and you must bide. But I'll come back when summer's in the meadow, or when the valley's hushed and white with snow, and you'll be here in sunshine or in shadow. Oh, Ely dear, oh, Ely dear, I love you so. Some day, maybe, when all the flowers are dying, and I am dead, as dead I well may be, you'll come and find the place where I am lying, and kneel and say an ave there for me. And I shall hear, though soft you tread above me, and all my grave will warmer, sweeter be, for you will bend and tell me that you love me, and I shall sleep in peace until you come to me. Next time on episode 1.25, Welcome to the Jungle, How to Get a Two-Rank Promotion, All the Animals in the World, Esper Tests, Otoko no Feelings, Totally Normal Constant Bombardment, Amuro the Seasoned Veteran, Creepy Slow-Mo, Who Gave Those Orphans a Bomb, Some Form of Comic Relief, and The Future of the Federation. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSP Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Hayato was doing fine before Kai showed up. If people would just give him a chance, he could have taken on that whole Xeon force by himself in the gun tank on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. There's statue in Ju- There's There's statue. <laughs> Sorry about that. Ugh, we just lost so much good stuff. All right. Time to good stuff over again. Yeah, I guess. Hang on, I'm too It'll never feel as authentically good, though. Remember that time we had to redo like half an episode and it was still great? <laughs> no, I have no recollection of that. Okay, well, that I'm ha- sure it didn't happen. <laughs> You're not allowed to gaslight me. <laughs> Ooh.
was that? That was beautiful. Thank you. I've already forgotten the thing I just said, so I'm going to look in my notebook again that I should have had open. <laughs> this is the second time I've made this mistake. <laughs> authentic. <laughs> I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and nah, maybe we cut that. I don't know that that's value add. <laughs> I mean it's true, but it's, I don't know that it's interesting. <laughs> if we're just listing true things about the episode. <laughs> Dicks. <laughs> Turn down your music. Don't idle <laughs> outside <laughs> our studio. Well, and it's winter. It's not like they have the windows down. You must have it so loud if we can hear it through your closed windows and in our studio.